Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. Line by line, over the course of her life, Frances Perkins drew the blueprint for a better society, one that protected the weak, curbed the unethical, and provided a humanistic framework for government. As the first woman ever to serve in a presidential cabinet, Ms. Perkins was officially empowered to go ahead and build her vision of a better country, enacting reforms that affect each of us even today, including such things as the duration of a work week, child labor laws, workplace safety regulations, overtime pay, unemployment insurance, and social security. The end. Let's talk about Frances Perkins. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1933, in seven days and 19 hours, Wiley Post completed the first flight around the world. The Lone Ranger broadcasts the first of what would be over 3,000 episodes in a 21-year run. The first issues of Newsweek and Esquire magazine were published. Draft, the first synthetic laundry detergent, went on sale. Albert Einstein arrived in the United States as a refugee from Nazi Germany. A century of progress, the World's Fair in Chicago opened. Elizabeth McCombs became the first female member of New Zealand's parliament. The first singing telegram was delivered by the Telegraph Cable Company in New York City. Alva Belmont and Louis Comfort Tiffany died. Susan Sontag, Corazon Aquino, Nina Simone, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Carol Burnett, Jane Mansfield, and Joan Rivers were all born. And in 1933, Frances Perkins is sworn into a historic position that will better the lives of millions for many, many generations. Fanny Coralie Perkins was born on April 10, 1880 in Boston, Massachusetts, the eldest of the two daughters of Fred W., and Susan Bean Perkins, though later records, even her official government records, have shaved two years off of her age. So you will sometimes read that she was born in 1882. Mama Susan was described as large, bustling, a woman with a hair trigger temper, with a big voice and an even bigger heart. She was raised with the notion of duty and service, which was deeply rooted in their church life and the social responsibility pervasive in New England at the time. Mama and Fanny seemed to be polar opposites, personality-wise. Fanny's younger sister did take after Mama. Uh, there was often a broken dish, a raised voice, a passionate defense of a viewpoint. But Papa and Fanny preferred studying a situation for later calm action. So at least each parent had one. Yeah, <laughs> no their kidding. very own. No kidding. Susan was actually from a family in Maine. Our whole beginning of our story takes place in Maine. And I really, really, really wanted to connect Susan Bean to Leon Leonwood Bean, the founder of L.L. Bean. But I couldn't quite do it. I wanted what it to happen. What are the chances, though, that there's a bean that's, I mean... Oh, I know. I will confess, I did not dig that deep. <laughs> But I did Although I will tell you, I tried to do the same thing. Remember, I think it was the um, Sarah Winchester podcast where I tried desperately to connect the gun Parker Brothers to the Monopoly Parker Brothers and I couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. Well, um, LL himself wasn't born until 1872, so they weren't of the same generation. Mm. Papa was also from Maine, a descendant of powerful Revolutionary War intellectuals, if that makes sense. Uh, convincers, pointers out of injustices. 
Papa's family had arrived from England and Scotland way back in the 1600s, like pre-pre-revolutionary settlers. They settled along the banks of the Damariscotta River in Newcastle, Maine, which is kind of between Portland and Bar Harbor along the coast. Papa got a good and thorough basic education through the Common School Movement, which was a state plan to standardize education and pay for it with public money. So many educational reforms begin in New England, let me just say. Um, you know, when you read things like, um, this is a selection from the fourth reader, the fifth reader. There's something to be said, in my opinion, for a common base of knowledge, mm-hmm. which I'm not entirely sure we get anymore. But for a while, and in a certain class of people, there was a common font of knowledge that everyone seemed to have access to. In fact, I think I'm like going to start collecting the McGuffey readers. I think I am. Oh, that's interesting. I would be curious to see those. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So these common schools taught reading, writing, and arithmetic with a bit of history and geography, plus Greek if you're a boy, and morality for all. Um, (laughs) Papa was an autodidact, though, who inhaled all other sorts of knowledge on his own as he grew up. And you had mentioned that a certain class of people, well, the Perkins family were a certain class of people. They did have some wealth. Uh, There was a brick industry in Maine that they had gotten involved in. They had their own brick plant. As a matter of fact, the house that Papa grew up in was a brick house the brick house, still there, that had been a gift to his parents for their wedding. So that brick house was made of bricks from the Perkins Brick Company. Unfortunately, the bottom fell out of the brick industry in northern Maine when some nefarious individuals got involved about at the time that Papa was born. So the family was farmers during his lifetime, but they still had wealth. So Papa, when he became a young man, bravely left his home to move to the big city of Boston, where a similarly motivated brother had just begun a law practice. He did a stint at one of the earliest giant merchant, shall we say, in Boston, which later became Macy's like everything else. You know (laughs) what I mean? But he soon grabbed a chance at a hole in the market and opened a stationery store, and then a side hustle with a circulating library. Publishers needed a way to reach this growing number of middle-class people who wanted to read the latest thing, but didn't yet have the disposable income to buy in quantity. What were the moving on up to do? Well, you would subscribe and pay for functionally book rental from one of these businesses. It's kind of like the blockbuster Mm -hmm. of its time. So they would get books at a discount from the publishers and rented them over and over to the eager public. This was just ahead, by the way, of the major public library movement in America. Carnegie, or as they more properly say, Carnegie, which I can never get used to, (laughs) would begin his library evangelism in just a few years. But as of right now, Papa made it just in time and made just enough money that he could marry at the age of 33. Their first child, Fanny, was born a couple of years into their marriage, and a couple of years after that, the family moved to nearby Worcester, where a young man could make a difference uh, still. It wasn't quite as developed, and he saw an opening. Papa started a paper and twine dealer business, and I actually found one of the invoices, and on it it says, Flax, hemp, and cotton twines, all kinds of paper bags, paper printed to order, stationery, blank books, cards. So he worked in 
agriculture and industry, retail and marketing. He covered all the bases and his career went up and up as did the family's fortunes. And as far as I can tell, that company that he started is still in existence. It was. It changed its name several times and it was bought out by a larger company in 2019. But it's, it's if you 2019. look. 2019. I know. It's still there. I mean, if you want to go into it a little bit, the person that he brought on as a partner was one of the families that ended up selling it in 2019. So they had been with it for a very long time. So uh, just a quick little picture of Papa, like call central casting in your mind and just say, hello, I need a proper Victorian father, please. And they'll say right away, madam, and send you this guy. Like his big precept, his big advice to his daughter was, if you have anything to say, say it and then stop. Don't make people listen to your vaporings. Right. Would Papa like this podcast? I am going to say no. He wouldn't like the side vaporings. (laughs) Papa and Mama were so opposite. Papa was often described as refined, educated, upper class. And she was described as plump, down to earth, and admired for her skills in animal husbandry. So I think it required her to do some uh, growing up, I guess, or just adapting when they moved to Worcester and became, you know, upper middle class family with staff. Yeah, it's actually kind of a little microcosm of what was happening in the wider world. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But like, A lot of behavior and attitude that was perfectly acceptable on the farm Mm -hmm. was not necessarily translatable to the factory. Like independent initiative is rewarded on a farm in a way that it wasn't in industrial America, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So Um, maybe all of America had to adjust from the strengths that they possessed when they were rural to bringing that into being part of the system. Right. Well, I guess we all have to do that now still, you know, however you were raised, it may not be where you land, you know, the culture you land in. Yeah. So Fanny and four years later, her sister Ethel were sent to a local elementary school where they got a good basic education. Our Fanny was described as a serious child, creative and resourceful. She had a large life of the mind, shall we say. Um, <laughs> as for school, if she liked it, she aced it. If she didn't feel it, mm, so sad. Too bad. Guess I'll get a bad grade. Don't care. <laughs> Hooray. Where she truly came alive, though, was during the summer. In the summertime, they did go back to where they had come from, back to Newcastle, back to the brick house. It was there that Fanny was able to really connect with her grandma, Cynthia. Now, Grandma Cynthia was a descendant of some revolutionary era big names. James Otis, Mr. No Taxation Without Representation, and Mercy Otis Warren. She'll get her own episode at some point, but she was a playwright and a pamphleteer, very vocal woman. She encouraged the colonists to resist British law, but then she also was vocal against the Constitution as an anti-federalist after the United States was becoming established. So she wasn't shy. And that was what Cynthia was uh, descended from. So that's what Fanny was descended from. And Fanny and Cynthia got on amazingly. She was full of admiration for her grandmother Perkins. Mm -hmm. She described her as worldly wise and spiritually wise and also said, hardly a week passes when I don't say as my grandmother used to say and realizing I'd taken her words as my guiding principles for life. So a couple that she called out specifically that grandma used to say, when someone opens the door for you, go 
forward through it. Take the high ground if someone insults you. Wise. Yeah. She also taught her the value of Yankee thrift, of grindstones, about responsibility for others and stoicism, all of which lessons young Fanny took to heart. So Papa only came up for a week or so every summer for his vacation. Most of the time, the pressure for Fanny to walk sedately, speak softly, be a lady was off. And she became quite, as they say, hoyden-esque. And from the descriptions I'm reading, a lot like Anne of Green Gables. She had an extraordinary imagination and people were drawn to her and her intelligent mind and her willingness to be a little weird in pursuit of the greater good. Once she fell out of a hayloft straight onto her back. And you know how we feel about 19th century medicine. Like, here, lie on this sofa and here's some Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, which is full of opium. <laughs> the end. There's your treatment. Um, but turns out she had broken her back, though no one knew that for 50 years. And that is a five zero. No one knew that on that day she had broken her back. <laughs> this tiny tot was tough. Let's just say. No kidding. She had an uncle who lived at grandma's house who had lost an arm in the war. And Fanny's able arm and brilliant mind became his secretly reluctant assistant and scribe. And through the process of him dictating his memoirs to her, she learned the history of her family and its role in the Revolutionary War and learned that small acts as perhaps done by her ancestors, can have great consequences. So there's a lot of education happening, you know, when you don't realize it's happening when you're a young person. And it's so interesting to me looking back, and this happens over and over, specifically in, in this episode, but in a lot of other episodes where you can see like a turning point or a theme emerges, mm -hmm. you know, and I know in my own life, I probably have a theme emerges, but you can't see it when you're in it. No, I'd be so interested to know, listeners, if you, looking back on your life or maybe even your parents' life, which is probably clearer to you, uh -huh. like, was there a theme that emerged at an early age? Interesting. I you personally know, would have to give that some thought. You just threw that at me, so I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I yeah. know. But like in I my know. life, the only, the only one I can come up with is that, that like revelation I felt as a small child when I read that. Laura Ingalls Wilder, like, today's today. Surely it can't ever be a long time ago. And that like philosophical breakdown when I was about seven about how history is just stories, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that I could see. Yeah. Well, I think when the stopper came out for me was when my mother taught me that just because it's always been done one way doesn't mean you can't try to do it a different way and it may be better. So that when I unplugged that, I was like, oh, I'm a creative person. <laughs> Who knew? There you go. Yeah. Now, Fanny did learn a lot from her father as well. This whole Perkins side of the family was really instrumental in her education. Her father had taught her Greek from the age of eight. Greek. <laughs> and he was an early supporter of suffrage. Papa had been on a business trip and he had heard a talk about suffrage and he said it was magnificent and he took it to heart. And suddenly he was all aboard the suffrage train. Okay, so I just want to add one more thing from her elementary school days before we, we move on. At around the age of 10, I mean, this seems out of nowhere, and it might be a little frivolous, but it does have ramifications for the rest of her life. Out of nowhere, Mama was regarding her one day, regarding her face. They were supposed to go somewhere. There were new clothes needed to be ordered, etc. And Mama said, the shape of your face requires a certain kind of hat, Fanny. You have, I mean, fat, 
cheekbones. Like you need a hat that's wider than your cheekbones. And you need to remember that because that's very important for the rest of your life. That's the hat you need to choose. So <laughs> um, so you'll see her for the rest of her life choosing what was basically a tricorn hat with a wide side and a narrow side. And she jokingly later said that it was her symbol of patriotism, but like <laughs> it's really 19th century contouring. Right. And I'm no one to joke because I still, and to this day, put my mascara on the way I was taught to do by Seventeen Magazine in approximately 1983. So <laughs> I get it. But just so every picture you see, she'll have a tricorn hat on. And that is why, because of an early declaration from her mother as a small child. Okay, and that almost could be, like, nice of her mom, but the way that she worded it was not. She said, quote, never let yourself get a hat that's narrower than your cheekbones because it makes you look ridiculous. Ah, I know. That's going to have an impact. She (laughs) always grew up thinking, now, if you see pictures of her, she is so cute and delightful. And that is the least thing about her. And it was made very clear as she was growing up that, yes, that was improper to focus upon. She had once bought a new dress and told her friend, if my father told me I looked pretty, it wouldn't happen because it would be a sin to even take notice of that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So she grew up in a house where vanity was not encouraged in any way by either a mama or papa. So she always kind of grew up This is a very serviceable outfit that doesn't make me look ridiculous. Right. And that did come from her childhood. Right. Now, Worcester, as Fanny was growing up, was increasing exponentially in population. By the time Fanny was ready for high school, their community had four times the population that there had been when she was born. Now, we talked about this during the Jane Addams podcast and maybe the Queen Victoria one, too. Industrialization brought some terrible things along with the technological advancement. Housing shortages, pollution, crime, overcrowding, sanitation, facilities for education, factory jobs attracted different groups of immigrants and migrants. And there was often a culture clash between them and, I guess, the OG residents who were not the OG residents, which we covered in the Pocahontas episode, if we want to go back even further. But, you know, like um, incoming populations are always a little bit of a source of stress. A major economic crash happened when Fanny was 13. What year was it? The year of our famous World's Fair, yes, but also the year of the Panic of 1893. There was worldwide stock speculation, runs on banks, railroad company failures, and those caused ripple effects throughout the economy. We've gone into this before, so we'll give you a link to the Pullman strike, but in an echo of today... Economic conditions led to a major railroad worker strike. There was a boycott of all railroads. There were troublesome problems with the transportation of goods and therefore price increased. There was increased violence, union busting by the federal government, widespread unemployment, which is the part of the whole thing that reached into Fanny's own life. In the family's immediate orbit, Papa paid the rent for impoverished families of their acquaintance. And Mama, of course, gathered food and clothing for the poor. He and Mama modeled behavior of helping people. They were often through their church, helping people, going and delivering food baskets and such. But on the flip side, both of her parents were staunch Republicans at the time, and they felt that people were poor because they didn't pull themselves up by the bootstraps. You know, 
if they stop drinking, stop sinning, work hard, stop being lazy, wealth would follow. You know, now it's still professed at some churches, you know, prosperity theology. You know, it's still a thing that if you pray hard enough, wealth will come to you. And that's what her parents were doing at the time. So on one hand, yes, they were helping these immigrants and less advantaged people in their town. But on the other hand, they're thinking now they can just pull themselves up. It's kind of like this concept in psychology called fundamental attribution error. If you or someone you view as an equal can't pay a medical bill, well, that's unlucky. If someone you perceive to be below you can't pay their bills, they must have spent it all on liquor mm -hmm. or iPhones. Mm -hmm. You know, likely they drink. Sad, really. You know what I yeah. mean? Like the philosophy at the time among the upper classes was if the poor, who are always in fact with us, as the Bible tells us, were smarter or had worked harder, they would not be in this situation. We help them because that's what we're ordered to do by God. But really, they ought to be helping themselves. But Fanny had questions. This middle class flower, whose only real exposure to, quote, the lower classes before this time was that she was accidentally in the middle of some kind of turf war while on a walk between some immigrant boys and American boys throwing rocks at each other. Um, now she looks around and at the people grateful for a loaf of bread, the men thanking her papa for having paid their rent another month in their lodging and asks, why do some people end up poor? What justice is there in these different circumstances? I don't understand. The answer didn't satisfy her. People are placed into their station by God. And along with the feeling of also the undercurrent of if they worked harder or were smarter, they wouldn't be in this situation. But what Fanny was seeing in her real life with her own eyes was her friendships developing with these lower class people and realizing that their families were working not only just as hard as hers, but harder. She wasn't seeing all this stuff that her parents were saying. There was no sinning going on in the family. There wasn't a lot of drinking. Why was it, again, that these people were not advantaged while her family was? Something about this didn't sit right. How can this be? And a seed of doubt was planted. Let's let it germinate because it's going to grow and leave that be for a minute. Let's let Fanny sit there with her wondering and move on to high school. Fanny attended Worcester Classical High School. At the time, there were two high schools in Worcester, and the one that she attended was focused more on a classical education geared towards students who wanted to go to college. They would take Latin and algebra, German, Greek, geometry, literature, things that would prepare them for college education. Originally, the curriculum had been designed to send boys to Harvard, but they were also an early adapter of co-ed education at the school. So it was presented to all of the students who attended there. She was on the debate team. She didn't really consider herself scholarly. She said, I could talk well, and I successfully bluffed through. That's her high school education right there. She was an indifferent student at best. She's one of those kids who could stay at the top of the class if she felt like it with little actual effort, but wasn't really motivated by grades. Mm -hmm. Gosh, if you're a teacher, I bet that is like the most frustrating student. Like all this potential, 
that no one cares to mine for mm-hmm. anything right. whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> the last class of classical high school didn't graduate until 1966. When it, yeah, when it was replaced by Doherty Memorial High School in Worcester, still standing, go Highlanders. That's a great team name, the Highlanders. I love it. Well, it's better than the Pirates. I never understand. I know. Our team is the Warriors, and they have drifted away, thankfully, from the indigenous references. And it's more of just Mm. tough. My high school was the Aces, and the mascot was like this... Mm, like a cartoon caricature pilot guy with this little biplane they wore over there, like <laughs> on a harness. And somebody stole the biplane a long time ago. And then I think the mascot outfit got stolen. I wonder what ever happened to that. Okay. So if you ever see anyone at a game in a <laughs> in a weird pilot with a double chin with a little dimple in it, you should give me a call. Yeah, that's right. Papa would have disapproved extraordinarily of hijinks like that. In fact, his daughters were brought up with a great sense of dignity. Being a proper reflection on one's family was deemed to be a very important attribute, as far as he was concerned. Proper Papa instructed his daughters to use what he called an egalitarian manner with everyone, no matter what their background or social class. Do not be fawning to those who consider themselves above you, nor familiar. Don't be arrogant. Don't be obsequious. Keep yourself a little apart and a bit formal. In fact, it may have been her sort of inner dignity that got her out of some sketchy situations, both on the street and in the legislature. (laughs) Hilariously. So Papa was not wrong that an egalitarian manner would serve his daughter well. Now, for some women of this era, high school would be the end of her education. It had always been known in the way that you just know things when you grow up that once she graduated from high school, Fanny was destined for college. The end. No discussion. Fanny entered the freshman class of Mount Holyoke College when she was 18 years old. We've talked about Mount Holyoke before. They were educators of Elizabeth Holloway Marston from Wonder Woman episode. And Emily Dickinson went there for a year. Future subjects, Lucy Stone and Ella Grasso. And she'll never be a subject, but Frances Baby Hausman went to Mount Holyoke of Dirty Dancing, also named after Frances Perkins, the character. (laughs) (laughs) That is a movie I have never seen all the way through. What? I I carried a watermelon. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. I know. People say that to me all the time. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, They are sort of unwieldy. You're right. (laughs) That's the whole point. (laughs) I did not know that that character was named. Well, of course, I didn't know her name was Frances either, but that actually is legitimately amazing. She says it in the car, like at the first scene. She says she's named after Frances Perkins. Yeah. Mount Holyoke was the first of what's considered the Seven Sisters Ivy League Women's Colleges. It had formerly been a seminary, but just three years before Fanny attended, it began calling itself a college. Less training for life as a missionary or Christian teacher and more academics and secular world careers. Mm -hmm. Not that far from Worcester, about 52 miles. So Fanny could go there uh, by train. She had to live on campus, but she loved it. 
So she's away from home. You know how fabulous freshman year is. You know, you're like a training adult for the first time. And she was planning to perhaps freshman slide and and have a lot of fun. But the professors called her on her not meeting her potential. You know, finally, at last, there's some teachers that like, yeah, I I know you could pass this test with no effort, but what I need from you is effort. Mm-hmm. That's what I need to be seeing from you. And she was a little bit like, oi, oi, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, let's see some nose to the grindstone, Miss Perkins. And so a few key members of the faculty angered her so much, getting after her constantly about like, why aren't you stretching yourself? Why aren't you working? Why are you trying to skate through life? Blah, blah, blah. That she did better at challenging coursework better than she had intended to just to prove them wrong that she was a slacker. They knew what buttons to push, I suppose. They'd seen it before, you know. I think that perhaps women were educated to keep their light under a bushel. And they're like, no, let's remove the bushel, my friend. Right. We're all here together. Let your light shine, you know. Never mind the increasing academic pressure that she was handling like a champ. The live-at-home pressure had let up and she was in a social world also. She was very, very popular, so much so that she was elected class president in her junior year and her senior year, too. She was called Perk by everyone who knew her at school and was voted, and I quote, the most valuable classmate in her year. Ultimately, Fanny majored in chemistry with minors in biology and physics. Where did that come from? College. (laughs) Those professors who were always up in my grill, papa, caused this to happen. But it was a history class in her last year, which changed the course of her life for real. You love to hear it, don't you? Hooray Mm -hmm. for history, changing your life. This professor, Anna May Sewell, believed heartily in fieldwork. And I quote the good professor herself. Questions are never purely academic. They are living problems as vital to the individual student as personal interest could be. She and her methods were considered quite radical. She brought in black authors to discuss in her class at a time when that was not necessarily the done thing. Anyone that questioned her as radical, she's like, and (laughs) what is your point? Like, are you surprised by me? You oughtn't be. And she was so mild and not defensive that most people just Oh, okay. Like, okay. Well, as long as you know what you're doing, go, go, said Professor Sewell to the factories in Holyoke. And why don't you tell me what you see there? What's going on over there? Does anything strike you as unusual or unjust? I'm not going to lead you. I want you to come back and report to me. It opened Fanny's eyes to the reality of the working poor. I mean, their extended hours, their dangerous circumstances, child labor, irregular paychecks, how ill health or a workplace accident could derail a whole family's chances of survival. The very knife edge of it all that had been going on behind the scenes and and Fanny had only seen a brief glimpse of it before in her life. How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Reese studies of the tenements of New York had come out and had become like a shocking photographic evidence of how the Industrial Revolution had impacted the working class. It exposed the horrible conditions of sweatshops, of tenements, the bewildering conditions that people had to contend with as they moved from their farms and their rural lives into the big city. And it became very clear through her reading and through this class that, oh, wait, they are not inherently 
flawed, these people, as I've been taught my whole life. Society is doing this to them. These photos are proof to me. My research is proof to me. And if society is doing things to them, that is something that can be undone. This eye-opening experience of college is kind of what we all want for ourselves and our children when they go away to college, to be exposed to things that they weren't at home, to be able to critically think about the world that they live in. What Fanny said of the time was that, quote, for the first time, I became conscious of character. I discovered for the first time that I had a mind. That's exactly what you want to get out of college. This book, all these reformers, this work had inspired reform movements all over New York State. For example, all over New England, no less a luminary than Theodore Roosevelt was inspired to start working toward just reform, like correcting these wrongs. When she was still a senior in college, she and some other students founded a college chapter of the National Consumers League, founded by our old friend Jane Addams and the Settlement House movement, but brought to life by a woman called Florence Kelly, who we referred to in the Jane Addams podcast, but certainly have not gone into in great detail. Florence Kelly and the consumer movement focused on the following things. If you, the consumer, buy anything, you have a moral responsibility to make sure that what you're buying has been produced in a moral fashion. That's very modern. We do that now, don't we, with sustainability and organic and, um, you know, no child labor in the chocolate factories and et cetera. Um, They were against sweatshops. They wanted minimum wage laws. They helped to enact the Pure Food and Drug Act, which led to food factory inspections and quality control. And also they were advocates of child labor restrictions. She was so inspired by a speech that Florence Kelly gave to the college students of the Consumers League that Fanny started to think, I am deep into what I am now seeing as my possible life's work. Mm -hmm. This is inspirational to me. Um, And Mount Holyoke's theme was, you know, be good and then go out into the world and do good. Like you have a responsibility as an educated person to make life better for everyone else. And so she had been immersed in that philosophy now for four years and now had the little match was, you know, put onto her gunpowder to go out in the world and do good. Her parents were dismayed by it all. I don't recognize you anymore, said her mother. Yeah. (laughs) And it almost seemed like in her family, her parents thought enthusiasm was equal to bad manners. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a very fine thought for someone that threw the breakfast plate against the wall and broke it, mama. Okay, so you can do that. You can have tantrums in the privacy of your own home, but you can't focus them to a greater good. Anyway, I didn't understand that. But they looked at her and said, I wish you would do something usual. Like, why don't you teach school? Hmm. She thought. Or get married, said Papa. Oh, yeah. Mm, She said. So she was inspired to defy her parents' wishes for her to teach school or become a wife immediately after graduation. And she went to New York City and literally buttonholed an extremely high up dude at the New York Charity Organization Society. I would like to work in this field. Do you have a job for me? And the secretary's like, he has no appointment. She's like, I don't need an appointment. I just need to ask him a question. It's like with the confidence of youth. Yeah. So she waited and finally they let her in. She was a respectable young lady. How, you know, whatever could this be? And he actually took the time to talk to her. I love this fire. 
in you. You're obviously very motivated. Um, and then he asked her some very important questions. Like, so what would you do if you went to a house and there were unwashed dishes in the sink and the children had no clean clothes and the wife had a black eye and the husband was drunk? And she just was like, well, of course, I would call the police. And he's like, you're officially too naive to work in this field right now. Right. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now, you have to be tougher. You have to have more experience of the world. And he sits down and he fills a page with writing. And he goes, you have to read these books. You have to look around. You have to observe. You have to maybe come back in a few years. Perhaps you should teach school. And he meant it as genuine advice. He was not being smarmy in any way. But you're too fresh for the rigors of this work. Like you don't even realize that you basically came in here to a CEO's office and made him give you career advice. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't even 100% realize what you have, what you're engaged in right now. Um, so his advice was go away, get in some trenches, experience the world, do reading, look around, and then come back and try again. She said, all right, sir, thanks for your advice. And I'll be back. She had been advised to teach, and so she put out notice on her network to try to get a position. All she could find at first was a sub-position for a couple of months in Connecticut, followed by the irritating-to-pronounce Lester Academy in Worcester. (laughs) I assure you, none of that looks like it's spelled. No. (laughs) No. I know that there's a lot of people out there, if they see Worcester... They pronounce it Worcester. I know this to be a fact. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Fanny was able to live at home, although she was half joking to her classmates when she wrote to them, nothing seemed to turn up for me, and I made up my mind that it was my mission to stay at home and make my family miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you know, she, her like zeal and everything was a little alien to her parents. Her Mm -hmm. mom had already expressed that at college graduation. I don't even recognize my daughter anymore. And now when you have a college student that's been out and about and comes back home there, you tell me you're the one. Is it a little bit um, fraught? Well, I'll just say that my one that actually did live here for a couple of years after college, since she was a 2020 graduate, she was delightful. But the other college graduate could not. There's no way. He even has a problem coming home for weekends. (laughs) So there's no way he could live here, which is good. I mean, he was supposed to go off and become independent. And that's exactly what he did. Well, then a year or so after she began torturing her family back in Worcester, she got a job at the Monson Academy in Monson, Massachusetts, teaching science and history. And that's just far enough away that she had to live there. Hooray! But then she got an opportunity to go even further afield. A school near Chicago called Ferry Hall, the school of schools for the um, daughters of the Midwest elite, let's just say. Miss Perkins taught physics and biology at Ferry Hall. The principal of this school was a woman named Frances Hughes, an avowed socialist who encouraged her new young teacher in her original passion, that of social work. Fanny was encouraged to visit a settlement house called the Chicago Commons for lectures and a tour, and the whole thing just blew her away. The settlement house movement we actually covered in full in the Jane Addams podcast, so we're going to provide you a link to that, but for those of you who have not heard it yet, settlement houses were a kind of proto-social work 
These houses were located in impoverished areas in major cities, and they worked as a way for wealthier individuals to help the poor, working poor usually, in practical ways. Education, work, advocacy with government, playgrounds, parks. Functionally, hello, the poor are also humans and deserving of a well-rounded series of helps that we can give them. You know, it was a radical notion for the time. In short, they were doing the work that Fanny had only had a glimmer of inspiration about before. It was amazing. And part of Jane Addams' strategy for the Settlement House movement was to give educated young women of a philanthropic bent an outlet for their knowledge and their brain power. And it sure worked. I mean, out of the Settlement House movement emerged a lot of reform. So Fanny remade her life after this exposure to this work, to this life, to these women. First, she changed her religion. She went from the Congregationalist church that she had grown up in, that her parents had uh, raised her and her sister in, that she had attended all the way up until this point, to the Episcopalian church. Now, there's not a whole lot of differences between the two. They're both Protestant denominations. The differences are Basically, you know, who do they listen to? Who does the service? The services are a little bit different. It's really not as much of a change in your faith as it is in your alliances. I think something that we can relate it to is, you know, those families that are just diehard New York Yankee fans. And when they meet diehard Boston Red Sox fans, there's a clash and your family just can't, you can't switch you know, your alliances to the Yankees. So that's kind of, in a very basic way, what the difference was between the Episcopalian and and the Congregationalist churches. So her parents were very upset. In their eyes, she had changed religions, when in actuality, not so much. Well, once upon a time, she'd actually threatened to become a Catholic. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if it was serious or, or not, but one thing she said later that she thought was important and that government needed more of, this is, I was kind of, as a person on the outside of this whole scenario, trying to figure this out, like, why was this a big deal? She said that what she needed in her religious life was pageantry, was ritual, was expectations and formality. She thought pageantry made things official and government perhaps could use a little more of it. And I thought perhaps she's actually an Anglican and was born in the wrong country. Oh, because that's what it sounds like to me. It's like she liked the formality of I can respect that. And it fit her way better. Her, It fit the mold of what she wanted out of her spiritual experience better. It was also the church of the wealthy in the area that she was living in. So she had friends that went to this church. You know, that was an easy in for her. So when she finally joined the Episcopal Church, she also officially changed her name to Frances Perkins. And so we should refer to her as Frances from now on. And 25-year-old Frances was starting fresh in all aspects of her life. Fairy Hall and her work at the school became an irritating day job. While she did what she considered to be her real work, 
at the settlement house and in the community. She actually spent her Christmas vacation from school living at the settlement house and became increasingly angry and upset and disbelieving, I think, at the stories of the people who passed through their doors, the realities they were experiencing of low pay, long hours, predatory bosses, for which, by the way, Frances Perkins went out to bosses that hadn't paid the female employees and like laid down the law. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to report you to the so-and-so board? Because I'm friends with the wife of the so-and-so and and I'm sure you wouldn't want to be exposed as running a corrupt shop, would you? I'll just call some journalists, won't I? Well, here's the pay. Golly, dang, you know. So she got these poor immigrant women the money that they were due because a lot of these bosses were engaged in some very nefarious wage theft. And what is this lady going to do? Go to court? This immigrant? Of course not. She doesn't even speak English. He can do whatever he wants. And she laid down the law early on that one. So good for her. Just going out on her personal feet with Mm -hmm. her personal heart and doing that. She also talked to um, landlords for the same basic reason. She heard stories of illness, of death, of dirt, of desperation. Just the inhumanity and degradation incensed her. What is to be done? She said, what is the answer? It can't be like this forever. We can give food to people. We can give milk to people till infinity, but there's something broken. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong. Why are they here in the first place? It's very upsetting. While her hands were busy with practical tasks, her head was just abuzz with possibilities. She's a person that made lists. She's a person that liked to scrutinize and to think, and, and that's what she began to do. She said, I had to do something about unnecessary hazards to life, unnecessary poverty. It was sort of up to me. This feeling sprang out of a period of great philosophical confusion, which overtakes all young people. But one thing seemed perfectly clear. Our Lord had directed all those who thought they were following in his path to visit the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, the prisoners, and so forth. Definitely the circumstances of the life of the people of my generation was my business, and I ought to do something about it. I love that she's making these social connections through her church, through the families of her students, through the area where she's actually living, and then using those connections in her work through the settlement houses. You know, like, oh, I know so-and-so. We just had tea, you know. She was in a kind of unique position, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we look at pictures of her and you think she's just, you know, serious and stuff, but she wasn't. She was very likable, very relatable to a wide spectrum of people, which a lot of us aren't. <laughs> you know, what is it? She wasn't especially little, but she was pretty little. And I wonder if maybe people are disarmed and then they expect her to be one way and then she comes out with some spectacular mental gymnastics and mm-hmm. people have to reevaluate, but they're not that fast. So they just laugh delightfully. I don't know. I'm going to ask you because I've seen it happen. I've seen people like come up to you and try to little lady you because you are a little lady. You know, you're look you're very small and you don't look like threatening or anything. And I'm just sitting there going, "Ooh, you just did the wrong thing because you're going to do the same <laughs> thing that Frances Perkins did on them. I've seen it now. I'm still tickled when we were on the Boston trip and that guy was trying to joke with me like, ha ha, are the people you cover the chicks or are you the chicks? And I said, Mr. Tom, we embrace ambiguity. <laughs> like and I made the whole circle of people laugh. And I'm like, and even him, he pointed at me and he goes, ah, you got me. I'm like, I don't even know. But it was really funny. So that's the kind of thing that I love doing, too. 
Well, um, also, I don't want to leave Whole House out. That's the OG, you know, run by our friend Jane Adams. She also worked at Whole House, where people interested in the settlement house movement from all over the world came through there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So speaking of networking, she was able to meet through her work there, like-minded people from all over the world, intelligent, interested in the same thing she was, and then they would go off to their homes and she knew them, you know, in other cities mm-hmm. and could write to them and ask for favors or information. Over the course of the next two years, she really tried to get any paying job in any kind of settlement work. All of this was still sort of largely volunteer driven still. Only really the founders or certain workers were paid positions. This is very early in the game. Mm-hmm. But by now, Frances had, like I said, this large network of people and one tipped her off about a brand new group in Philadelphia. It was actually run by one of the women that had gone through Hull House as a volunteer. It was called the Philadelphia Research and Protective Association. They hired her on recommendation and reputation for only 20% of her school salary. Still, hooray! She, like, went right away. Oh, yeah. Right away. She she was at last on the right ladder as far as she was concerned. Mm-hmm. As of now, though, her job exposed her to another kind of seedy element that she had been sheltered from before of poverty. Young girls and women immigrants were preyed on by syndicates. I guess that's the only word. Like networks of tricksters that would trap them into prostitution. These women would think that they were answering legitimate job ads and being put up in legitimate boarding houses. But what would happen is they would be drugged and that's it. Then they're prostitutes working at his boarding house and working for these people. She had a four pronged brief that she was supposed to do. One, make a study of what the facts were. Who are these women? Where are they coming from? What happens to them after they leave the train station? Two, think of a program to combat the actual issue. Three, get it going with employees and location. And four, work with government entities for funding, legislation, and enforcement. All right, Ms. Perkins, here's an office due. And then they waved a hand in a vague direction, whatever. Do it, whatever that is. Like, oh my goodness. Well, in the Ignorance is Bliss department, I am very fond of this Ignorance is Bliss department. (laughs) She just went into the danger zone, just started going into the nefarious areas, patrolling the train station and asking questions. She made lists, she made maps, she talked to employment agencies and determined, okay, these employment agencies are legitimately placing girls in houses as maids. Where they actually clean things? Fair enough. That's a legitimate employment agency. Right. Like, we are placing girls in factories legitimate. We can't really tell you where our people go and know you can't interview any of them. Hmm. Suspect. You know? Right. Oh, same thing with boarding houses. Are you part of the problem or a real place that a girl from the country could live legitimately? She created maps of the city with percentages of ethnic groups and contacts and key locations in each area. Her first plan, the first order of business, was to legitimately just foil the trickery at the initial encounter. So she's a practical person, and you could attack theory all day, and that, I assure you, was going on in the back of her mind. But she thought, okay, the first order of business is to intercept these first encounters in the first place. And so she hired two women of color to meet the trains 
and later the boats and literally just foil the procurers by directing these ladies to the correct sort of boarding houses or employment agencies. She was so successful that she convinced the police department that these ladies needed police protection because people were very, very angry that their supply of fresh young faces from the country had been cut off at the knees. They were very, very angry and they were very dangerous men. And they knew who she was. One day she was walking and she realized that two of these men were following her. So instead of running off, she turned and she took her umbrella out and started to whack at them with her umbrella, starting screaming their names out loud so people could know what they were and what they were doing and was able to get the police not only to arrest them, but to do raids on their houses of ill repute. And ultimately, this led to licensing of boarding and lodging houses in the city and inspections of employment agencies. So see, the acute thing worked and the long-term law enforcement involvement worked as well. She's doing what she was hired to do. She became a presence at City Hall. I know politicians want to do good. She said, I just have to make it easy for them to channel all that power in the right direction. I love that. <laughs> she was becoming so persuasive. Part of her job was to fundraise as well as raise awareness for what this organization did. So she was doing a lot of speeches to community groups and getting up on stage and just convincing people that this is something important that needs to be addressed in their city. She loved the theory testing aspect of her work so very, very much. The cause and effect of moving what levers she moved, you know, that she began to take evening classes in sociology and economics at the University of Pennsylvania with all the time she had left from everything else. That's right. The year she started to go back to college, a report came out on the city of Pittsburgh that was kind of an expanded version of things that she had done before with the maps and the lists. And it's called the Pittsburgh Survey. And it actually made waves all over the social work and political spectrum. It covered conditions of work and housing and health and education, fire departments, recreation, just every aspect of human life and it made a special call out for the evils of the 12-hour day. 12-hour days caused family units to break apart, she said, and also accidents were common and people were afraid to push back because there were 100 people willing to take your sucky, mean, horrible, dangerous job if you were so foolish as to complain about it. Like fear of losing the job, fear of being blacklisted from every job really, really ruled the roost. Right there, scientifically laid out were facts that proved what settlement workers had known for years, what young Fanny had intuitively worked out for herself was poverty was a result of flaws in society and not a result of flaws in personality. So mama and papa, it is not that they simply took to drink. It's that society had placed them in circumstances that were untenable for human life. To continue her education, she accepted a scholarship to study in New York City at the School of Philanthropy. And then after she was doing that, she decided to go on to Columbia University to work specifically towards a master's degree in sociology and economics. So she's doing all this work in the daytime and now she's going to school too. 
And she was working on her thesis, which was another survey. That's what they called these like massive, intricate studies that they did. This one was about undernourished children and the detrimental effects on their development. And that's what she was working on. So you would think she hadn't got any time left for any human life. She's got a lot going on. She's got a lot of plates that she is spinning. Oh, no, just like in high school, her social life was heating up. It was a big deal. She was in the most exciting city in the world. And she went to art exhibits. She went to excursions to Staten Island and other parts of New York City. She met writers like Sinclair Lewis and Theodore Dreiser. In fact, I think Sinclair Lewis once proposed marriage to her. He did. But I think they were, yeah, screaming through the window. I don't think it was real. Like, I don't know. Maybe. I think, no, I think they were um, really good friends. And I think he was kind of testing the waters to see if it's something she'd want to pursue. Oh, like if she had been serious that he would have gone ahead. But since she laughed, it's like, ha ha ha. Yeah. Yeah. I was totally joking. Yeah. That's what I that's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she loved to go to salons and talk about the issues of the day and restaurant outings. Um, Friends of friends, her network, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's six degrees of Francis Perkins. I mean, like everybody (laughs) seemed to know somebody that knew somebody that knew her. Right. Type thing. (laughs) Right. You know, remember, you also meet the fancy people at the settlement house, or at least their sons and daughters, to be truthful. Politicians knew her, too, from her advocacy there. Educational people knew her from her existing network and her work in the school system. So once she submitted her thesis and it was, you know, accepted, overachiever Miss Frances Perkins now had a master's degree from Columbia, a giant circle of friends and acquaintances who admired her fine mind and her energy and her sense of humor, and now a job offer to work at the New York City Consumers League. This is the the OG, the original hub of the very first social project she'd ever worked on back in college with the very first person who from the stage had inspired her to go into social work in the first place. The mission of the National Consumers League, which was founded by a woman who was one of her mentors, Florence Kelly, we talked about her before. The mission was to monitor and change working conditions in manufacturing facilities to, quote, investigate, agitate and legislate. So to find all the things that she's been doing, you know, research the problem, research all aspects of it, make a noise to have some change, you know, have a plan and then trying to make it law. Those are fine points. I think it's great. And then she's working with her mentor. Mm -hmm. She's learning how to do, especially the last part was the novelty for her, the legislate part she'd never done before. This is a very good apprenticeship here. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to tell you guys about a few of the projects that she worked on. Keep in mind, she also took more sociology classes at Columbia. And by the way, taught one at another college like you do. So she performed two groundbreaking surveys. Again, these are like extensive research projects with visual aids and statistics. Okay. She became an expert on both. First, bakery safety and sanitation. She covered things like ventilation, contagion. That's terrifying. Working hours and conditions and wages and discuss how to fix them and what the conditions were. A lot of these bakeries, especially in New York City, of course, were underground. And there were a lot of problems that came with locating food production facilities underground in this day and age. So she uh, notated and delineated all of those. Also, fire safety project, which was inspired by a tragedy at the Anchor Lamp 
factory in New Jersey. The governor of New York said it's only a matter of time before something like this happens in New York City. And so it was her job to study things and become an expert on things like fire exits, signage, sprinkler systems, flammability of both building materials and merchandise and means of production, width of stairs, density of the workforce, placement of heaters, number and type of safety devices. She studied it all. She knew it all. And she memorized it all. She had it all in her mind. If you had a question about food production, sanitation, or fire safety, you soon learned to just come to the font of all knowledge, Francis Perkins. It was easier than digging it all out yourself. If you were a government official, a union rep, or an activist, oh, yeah, you need to contact Frances Perkins and she'll let you know what's going on. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. And you think that that would keep her busy enough. But no, in addition to that social life that we talked about before and this all-encompassing job, she had published a few short stories, romance stories. Did you read what the romance stories were about? You guys are not going to believe this. (laughs) Go ahead. It was about Harvey girls working at the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Yeah, that's two worlds colliding right there. They got into some kind of peril, and it was important that there be a happy ending. And that was the whole shtick. She probably could have sold them at the Harvey houses along the route, actually. Oh, sure. Oh, I bet she could. And she also toyed with the idea of becoming an actress. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know how much toying she did with that, but it was listed in a couple sources. So, okay, She did a lot of speaking for other causes, uh, specifically suffrage and feminism. She would literally get on a literal soapbox and give her Mm -hmm. speeches. She said, feminism means revolution, and I am a revolutionist. I believe in revolution as a principle. It does good for everybody. Well, she saw at ground level the injustices that women faced in the workforce. They earned less money. They worked more hours. There were no union protections for women because most unions did not accept women, even if the women and men worked side by side together. She spoke about women's suffrage, which she thought was the key to fixing these problems because she thought women are interested in these matters. And once women have the vote, we can move this needle. We will make our precepts into law when women had the vote. I mean, she was really, really strongly believing that women were the key to making society fix all these problems. Women will influence the social programs we already support. Our might will turn the tide. She was such an impassioned and effective speaker that they did have her on that soapbox on street corners and keeping the attention of the passersby with comedy and intensity. And she said, and I quote, campaigning for the vote did more to make me truly at ease with everybody and fully democratic in my feeling about the roughest kind of people than anything else I ever did. Considering all that she has been doing with the roughest kind of people, that standing on a street corner is the one that gave her the most education. That's interesting. I read in a couple of places that she was the most adept at making a rough comment into a comedy moment. They didn't put it exactly that way, but it was like everyone was kind of afraid of like, oh, no, what if I get back to this corner? And she's like, 
let me do it. You know, like, yeah. shake your <laughs> I got this. I got this. Hold my hat. Yeah so, yeah. so it was fine. And I liked it. I liked her a lot. Another project uh, the Consumers League had been pushing for was a bill to prohibit women and boys under 18 from working in factories more than 54 hours a week. That was the goal. That was right. the production. It had passed. Hooray. But then it had just been ruled unconstitutional. Boo. So Florence Kelly and her friends had addressed the issues that had made it unconstitutional, and they resubmitted it to the New York Assembly for voting and discussion. And so Frances entered a new phase of her career. She became a lobbyist. So she had the job of convincing lawmakers to pay attention to the bill and convince them of its sound foundation in facts. There's less fatigue, there's less accidents, and better productivity. Not to mention, and she didn't go into this because it was sort of soft logic, people are humans and not machines. <laughs> they need time to be human. But, you know, the common sense didn't necessarily enter into the lobbying. It's productivity. That's the way in. See, she always tried to speak to her audience. Mm -hmm. As she was being shown around, she was introduced to a young assemblyman named Al Smith. Notably, listen to this, he was considered weird for reading all the legislation before a vote and, if applicable, looking up precedent so he'd be knowledgeable and know which way to vote. And I have four exclamation points in my notes after that. Like, everyone was like, whoa, that guy. Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okie dokie. I thought that's what you were all doing. Hmm. Well, he had a reputation of diligence, obviously, and also of integrity. And he told her that an unsupportive and antagonistic colleague of his had her bill trapped in committee and was going to bury it without a vote. I'm just letting you know. Um, don't be sad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, there's machinations at work. And uh, you know what? Let's see what we can do. The problem is that the canneries wanted to be exempted from the legislation, specifically excluded. And she said, absolutely not. They have a very high percentage of women employees and we won't accept that. All right. All right. How about this? We will arrange for some debate. And so he arranged to tag team with her at the hearing, always asking questions to which he knew she had facts or photos or answers to. And they made a great showing. The votes, this is what they think, were there to pass, but it was held up legally, but corruptly in committee by politicians who had friends that owned factories that were, coincidentally, big contributors to re-election campaigns. So despite the best efforts of Al Smith and Francis Perkins, the bill never came out for a vote. And it was kind of heartbreaking, definitely frustrating, but illuminating for a realist like Francis. Okay, strategies must be developed. At least I met some fellow activists. Um, I met this Al Smith, and perhaps we together can work for a more just world. But I have to go back to the drawing board for stuff like this, which I have never encountered before. Okay. One afternoon in March of 1911, she was 31 years old, and she went to have tea at a friend's house that was overlooking Washington Square. We've all seen Washington Square. It's in just about every movie set in New York. It's that big white arch in a park. That's where she was. And just as they were sitting down, they heard fire bells and people started screaming out in the street. And they went to the window and they looked and across the square was a 10-story building. And the top three stories were shooting out fire. The building was on fire. It's the Triangle Shirtwaist Manufacturing Company. 
and Frances just hiked up her dress and raced towards it. She knew that company and she knew what was happening because of all of her fire safety research. She knew that this was an eventuality, that something like this was going to happen. And she had to watch it unfold in front of her eyes. There were young women just jumping out of the windows of this manufacturing facility. She knew why there were two stairwells to get up to those floors. One of them was locked from the outside to prevent things from being stolen. And the other one, the door opened inward, which, yes, it opens. But if you have a lot of people down in that doorwell, it's not going to open. So women were just jumping to their deaths. There were managers that were leading the women out the windows, just screaming. And it was the most horrifying thing that she could have ever seen. Anybody could have ever seen. We will link you back to an episode about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire where you can get all the details. One of the most heartbreaking for me is that this factory was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of this building and the very longest fire department ladder only went to the 6th floor. So once you were out on the windows and the fire got so hot, there was not a lot of choice as to what you could do. Just two years earlier, Francis and 20,000 other employees from across the city of New York had marched and picketed for safer working conditions in garment manufacturing buildings just like this one. They wanted safer conditions. They wanted better pay, fewer hours. These women were working 12-hour days for about $15 a week. And in modern money, that's still only about $450. Not to put too ironic of a point on it, once that strike was over, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory carefully and surgically fired every single employee of its company that had participated in the strike. Mm -hmm. Just to let you know, they don't play that around there. And it came back to haunt them. So if the owners of that company had just done what some other companies had done and made working conditions safer, 146 workers who died in that fire, 47 of them had jumped to their deaths, would have survived. Yeah, it was nightmarish circumstances. So as the investigation turned into a trial of the owners of the Triangle Factory, so during the trials... It was proven that despite obviously being at fault logically, unfortunately, the owners were not responsible legally. They paid a pittance of $75 per dead employee to the families, and no one could point to a law that they'd actually broken. Checkmates. Well, obviously, that's a problem that needed to be solved by legislation then. I mean, literally the attention of everyone working in this field of social improvement was laser focused on the causes of this particular tragedy. What Francis realized during the day of the fire and the grieving that the entire city had afterwards and the trial of these people, she realized that such a tragedy could actually be used as a catalyst for change because of its visibility. Frances knew that she would never forget it. What she said was, quote, I felt I must sear it into my memory, not only on my mind, but on my heart as a never to be forgotten reminder of why I had to spend my life fighting conditions that could permit such a tragedy. That will do it for us for part one of our coverage of Frances Perkins. There's so very, very much more to say. 
Next week, of course, is full of assorted holiday activities, and we're going to post our traditional Mrs. Claus episode over that weekend. Give us time to drink all the champagne and eat all the cheese. So very much cheese. (laughs) But right after that, we'll be back to part two, where Ms. Perkins hones her legislative skills, moves to Washington, and works with the president. We really owe her a lot. And it is tough on the heels of where we ended, which was, of course, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, to come at you here with the frivolous song at the end. But I thought this exemplified Francis Perkins' general career. People try to tell her one thing, and she shuts them down and tells them how actually to behave in the nicest way possible while accomplishing the saving of many lives. So please forgive me for the contrast. The song in the middle is Silhouettes, Opus 8, Number 5 by Antonin Dvorak, and the song at the end is Straighten Up and Fly Right by Jerry Costanzo. Happy holidays to all of you, and to all a good night. See you next time. And I'm saying this for Susan, who is in fact asleep in bed as it is three in the morning. Bye. A buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air. The buzzer thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off of his back. The monkey grabbed his neck and said, now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top What's the use in jiving? Ain't no use in diving Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top The buzzer told the monkey, you're choking me Release your hold and I shall set you free The monkey looked the buzzard right dead in the eye And said, your story's so touching, son, but it sounds like a lie Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and stay right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top <laughs>